This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. The job of the Supreme Court is to decide whether laws and court decisions are consistent with the principles of the Constitution. Should they decide that on the basis of the original intent of the framers? Or should they regard the Constitution as a living document that has evolved in response to changes in society and in our understanding of the world? Today, three Supreme Court justices are originalists, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett, and three others often couch their arguments in originalist terms, John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and Samuel Alito. For comment, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's Dean of the Law School at UC Berkeley and the author of 15 books. He's also a frequent contributor to the New York Times and the LA Times op-ed pages. His new book is Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome back. Great to talk with you, John. Well, the originalists say their method is neutral and objective, but their rulings almost always seem to support Republican political positions. Why is that? There is no neutral or objective way to interpret the Constitution. The Constitution was intentionally written in very broad, open-ended language. And how justices read it is a function of their values. Besides, no right is absolute. And what constitutes a sufficiently compelling or important or legitimate interest is all about the values of the justices. Think about June of 2022. The Supreme Court found no abortion rights exist under the Constitution, that high school football coach has a right to pray on the field, that the government is required in certain circumstances to subsidize religious schools and very expansive gun rights. Unless you believe that the framers in 1791 had the same views as the current Republican platform, it's clear what's going on. Well, of course, the originalists are are certainly right on some things. For instance, there is nothing in the Constitution that says women have a right to abortion. Nothing in the Constitution says anything about women. The word women doesn't appear in the Constitution. So the original intent of the men who wrote the Constitution was clearly not to protect women's right to abortion. That seems undeniable. In fact, Justice Scalia frequently said, that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment doesn't protect women from discrimination at all. It was only meant to stop race discrimination. That, to me, shows the absurdity of originalism. Throughout American history, the Supreme Court has rejected originalism. The court has protected its rights, the right to marry, the right to procreate, the right to custody of one's children, the right to keep the family together, the right of parents to control the upbringing of their children, the right to purchase new contraceptives, the right to engage in private, consensual adult, same-sex sex activity, the right of competent adults to refuse medical care. None of those are in the text. None of those were intended by the framers either. If the court's going to overrule all of them, it's truly a radical reformation of constitutional law. Well, there is also something true about the argument that if you think something is missing from the Constitution or wrong in the Constitution, you can amend the Constitution. The Founding Fathers made that explicit. They didn't claim this was perfect for all time. They said, you can you can change this if you want. And when it came to slavery, that's exactly what happened. The Founding Fathers didn't do anything about banning slavery, but after the Civil War, the Constitution was amended to prohibit slavery. So if you think abortion rights belong in the Constitution, go ahead and amend it. 
Amending the Constitution takes vote of two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states. The Constitution was amended only 17 times since 1791, and two of those involved imposing and then repealing prohibition. More important, what we're talking about here is the rights of minorities in society. And the rights of minorities shouldn't have to depend on a supermajority to protect it. Let me give you an example I discuss in the book. The same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment also voted to segregate the District of Columbia public schools. There's no indication that Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment was trying to outlaw segregation. Therefore, Brown versus Board of Education was wrong. And by what you were just saying, under that view, the only way to outlaw segregation would to pass a constitutional amendment. It never was going to happen. The rights of the minority should not depend on needing a supermajority to accomplish it. We've said that the founding fathers wrote broad principles, but in some cases, the original intent is pretty narrow and specific and clearly stated. For instance, the Second Amendment, the first words, this is the one about gun rights, the first words indicate that this is about a well-regulated militia. Some of the founding fathers wanted states to have strong militias to counter the national army, which they saw as potentially an instrument of tyranny. So the Constitution says the national government can't prevent states from organizing and arming militias. You can find out all about this if you read the 18th century arguments about standing armies and citizen militias. It's not about individual people carrying guns around. Here, the intent is perfectly clear, or at least it seems so to me. I think, as with anything, you can read intent either way. I think there's a strong argument, as you say, based on the text of the Second Amendment, that it's a right to have guns for militia service, and that's it. On the other hand, Justice Scalia made a strong argument in District of Columbia versus Heller that the Second Amendment was also about a right of people to have guns in their home for the sake of security. Justice Stevens made a strong argument in dissent that the Second Amendment is just about a right to have guns for militia service. The point that I'm trying to make is it's not like history is clear or that there's a single answer to be found from history. It's always much messier than that. There are people historically who expressed varying views. There were differing practices in the country at the time. So what you find is that justice or originalists are looking back at the historical record and picking the examples that support the position they want to come to and ignoring the rest. That's why the conservative justice using originalism magically always come to very conservative results. So their idea is we should study and learn the original intent of the founders. Uh, how do you do that exactly? Well, that assumes there was an original intent of the founder. In reality, there's so many people who participated at the Constitutional Convention and the state ratifying conventions with so many different views that there's not an intent to be found. It also begs the question, even if somehow we could bring James Madison and those who were at the Constitutional Convention back to life, what relevance would their views have today? They lived in such a radically different world in 1787 than ours of 2022. Why should we want to be bound by their conceptions? I noticed that Clarence Thomas argues that the original meaning of the Establishment Clause, prohibiting the establishment of an official religion, applies only to the federal government. 
and that it leaves states free to fund specific religious denominations or even to declare that a state has an official religion. But none of the other people who call themselves originalists agree with him about that. So how do we decide who's right? Yes, that is Clarence Thomas's position that he's stated many times that the prohibition of establishment of religion only was meant to keep Congress from creating a national church. It doesn't create an individual right. Under the Thomas view, a state could articulate and establish an official state religion. A state could compel religious behavior. A state could fully subsidize churches and the constitution wouldn't limit it. Thankfully, no other justice has been willing to go along with that position. Justice Scalia called himself a, quote, faint-hearted originalist. He wasn't willing always to go as far as where the original intent might have taken the Supreme Court. My guess on this, the other justices were originalists, are thankfully also being faint-hearted. <laughs> well, they were perfectly clear about some things. Two senators for each state, four years for the president. Then there are the things that are not so clear, like the 14th Amendment that guarantees equal protection of the laws. They don't say what that includes. Could it be that they left it open on purpose, that their original intent was to leave it to us to decide how it should be understood? I think there's overwhelming evidence that's exactly what the framers did. They left things open for the future. Chief Justice John Marshall, who was one of the framers at the Constitution Convention, said, we must never forget that it's a constitution works bounding. Constitution meant to be adapted and endure for ages to come. I think there's strong evidence that the framers wanted the Constitution to take on meaning over time. They didn't want interpretation of the future to be governed by their views. It also is a very elegant argument against originalism, because if you follow what I just said, that if one was an originalist and wanted to follow the framers' intent, one has to abandon originalism because they never wanted it. I like that argument. <laughs> The um, Equal Protection Clause was cited just recently in the argument before the court about affirmative action at colleges and universities. The plaintiffs say affirmative action violates the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection. Tell us about that, uh, that argument that's currently being taken up by the justices where we're waiting for their decision. The Supreme Court in 1978, in 2003, and in 2016, said that college universities have a compelling interest in a diverse student body. College universities can use race as one factor in admission decisions to benefit minorities and enhance diversity. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two cases on October 31st is where they'll overrule those prior decisions and eliminate affirmative action by college universities. Ironically here, the original intent of the 14th Amendment strongly supports affirmative action. The same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment created many programs like the Freedmen's Bureau that were race conscious. And it's interesting when the originalist justices, Scalia and Thomas, dissent in those earlier cases, they never mention that original intent. And my guess is we're going to see the same thing here. The six conservative justices overruling precedent, eliminating affirmative action and paying no attention at all to the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Erwin Chemerinsky, his new book is Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. Erwin, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, John.
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.